will move out beyond that area in all directions in an effort to surround it, possibly capture it. Your orders are shoot to kill. Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I am Steve Morris. And I feel like we've gotten to an episode that is so basic to my philosophy. And I'm so excited to go into the dark and look for a devil. This is a landmark episode for so many reasons. But Steve, before we get into the devil in the dark, I just have to say I am still flying high (laughs) over our last episode on this side of paradise and who joined us as a special guest. I mean, how awesome was it not only to have the director of that episode join us, but how wasn't Ralph Sinensky just like the nicest guy? He was a delight. It was like he was uh, born to be on our show. He fit in just absolutely perfectly. He is so sharp. He is so kind. And what was so crazy to me is his way of thinking about directing is pretty much the ideal of what I try to teach my students. You know, it really is. In addition to the way he thought about directing, uh, some of the ideas that he had about the episode, I have to say, you know, for, for two people like you and me who've been able to blow each other's minds and blow the minds, hopefully, of some of the people who've been listening to Enterprise Incidents, a couple of things that Ralph Sinensky pointed out to us blew our minds. Absolutely. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. What, what's so crazy to me is having directed, I don't know how many episodes of television he directed, but is it o- over 100? It's got to be over yeah, 100. Yeah. <laughs> is that he could still remember why he set up a shot the way he did or what it was like working with Shatner on a particular take and how many takes it took. I mean, that's, I can't remember that of movies that I made and I'm not 98 years old and haven't directed hundreds of things. Well, the thing is, that's interesting is that this, uh, this side of paradise was not the episode that he was originally Mm. going to direct. The episode that he was going to direct was the devil in the dark and the producers specifically uh, Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman felt that a complex episode like Devil in the Dark should go to a director who who had done a few episodes and kind of had it down. But it was a happy, happy thing to happen for everyone involved, including the the fans who watched Star Trek over these last 55 years, because what Sinetsky did with this side of paradise, for, and of course, you know, Gene Kuhn and of course, Dorothy Fontana, who, who wrote the episode and Jerry Saul, who wrote the story, it is uh, an absolute landmark episode, a classic a masterpiece episode and a unique episode. There's nothing like it. But now that we are on The Devil in the Dark, like you say, this is an episode that represents what Star Trek is all about. But did you always feel this way growing up? Did you feel this way when you were younger and you first caught Devil in the Dark? Yes, 100%. I've always really liked this episode. And the lesson of it is one that I've always lived by. I mean, it's such a such a key thing in the way that I look at the world. And and it's not that this lesson of learn about the other side, we, we, we fear what we don't understand. It's not that those things aren't in other episodes, going back to Balance of Terror and a whole bunch of others, but this is the, this is the most crystal clear one, I think. It is absolutely a, a representation of what, what Star Trek really, really stands for. And of course, it was written by Gene Kuhn. In fact, this episode was one of the, rare cases where the writer who came up with the idea and the outline 
was the only one to work on the teleplay oh, wow. from start to finish. No one else had a hand. No one came in and rewrote it. No one polished him. It was Gene Kuhn from the very, very, very beginning. And the episode was filmed between January 16th to January 25th, 1967. It was the 27th episode to film over seven days, which means it did go one day over budget. It also went about $3,439 over budget. The total cost was $188,439 over the $185,000 budget. Good thing the score was tracked, and it was directed by Joseph Petney. It was the fourth of 14 Star Trek episodes that he had directed, and it aired on March 6, 1967. But in addition to representing like what Star Trek is all about and just one of, I mean, clearly Gene Kuhn's finest screenplay, it is also among the best work that, that Jerry Finnerman ever did. Absolutely. Lighting. I yeah. mean, the lighting, the dramatic lighting of the caverns and the caves, uh, I think just sets such a mood that makes it sort of unlike any other Star Trek episode. I think it's so interesting because there's another episode that takes place in caves that we've been through, which is what are little girls made of. And that episode looks great. This episode looks better. I think that the show has really fit into its look and you could see Jerry Finnerman kind of strutting his stuff a bit in this episode. There's a lot of confidence there. The only drawback to this episode is that there are no speaking parts for women at all in this episode. And that is something that uh, Roddenberry had had a problem with then. And I'll get to that when we, when we wrap it all up. But, you know, while there are no speaking parts for women, you could say that a female is the most important true. character of all. And we'll get to that as well. But like I said, Gene Kuhn, it was all Gene Kuhn from start to finish. He wrote the story outline on November 29th, 1966, did his first draft December 19th, his second draft, final draft on December 22nd. And then he did a couple of script revisions, uh, page rewrites after a tragedy struck during the making mm. of this episode that necessitated uh, a couple of adjustments. And we'll get to all that. So he did those revisions on January 16th, 1967, but uh, absolutely a, a landmark episode. And definitely like now that we're coming to the end of the first season, we, we've talked about how, how uh, certainly I felt like the, the series really hit its stride from the second half of the first season. And I certainly feel like right now, the episodes that we've done, like, you know, Spacey, Taste of Armageddon, This Side of Paradise, and now Devil in the Dark, like we are, we are a peak Star Trek. Do you agree with that? This run of episodes is unbelievable how good it is. Just one after another of knocking it out of the park. Absolutely. And this is also, uh, you know, I've talked many, many times, Steve, about the photo novels. Mm. And I'm convinced that I'm convinced that one way or another, I'm going to get you a series of photo novels. <laughs> and I know I know how you feel about about, you know, clutter and, and, you know, getting getting stuff like this. But when you see these photo novels, you're going to be like, yeah, this is pretty cool. So so Devil in the Dark was actually photo novel number nine. And mm -hmm. I remember in uh, 1979 when I was at my local comic book store in Philadelphia uh, at the corner of Bustleton and Solly and I saw. Uh, the picture of Spock doing the mind melt with the Horda on the cover of the photo novel. And I'm like, I got to have it. So this is 
for for many many reasons it's going to be a sentimental uh favorite because i just love those photo novels yeah. and i still have all of them that's awesome would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when uh, they were i making can't this? wait <laughs> so this was shot between january 16th and the 25th in 1967 on the 16th as part of the Cultural Revolution in China, the newspapers started carrying photographs of public government officials who had, in Mao's opinion, done wrong by the Communist Party. These were these were pictures designed to humiliate them. Oh, boy. That the whole country would see. On the same day, Lucius Amerson was sworn in as the first black county sheriff in the Deep South in over 100 years in uh, Macon County, Georgia. On January 17th, and Scott, this one is for you, the UK Daily Mail printed a story about a custody hearing of a minor celebrity and another about holes in the road in Blackbird and Lancashire. Ooh, Do you know what these uh, have, have in common? Like, uh, that sounds like the lyrics to A Day in the Life. Yep. John is, Lennon must have been reading the paper he that was day. reading the paper on January 17th, 1967. Uh, on the 18th, A Fistful of Dollars premiered. That is the first of the Spaghetti Westerns. Um, uh, on the same day, eight communication satellites were launched by the Air Force. On the 21st, the first computer ever to play at the master chess level competed in a competition it didn't do that well. It it uh, lost 12 matches and, and drew three. Um, on the 23rd, William Harster was tried for the murder of 82,856 Jews in Munich. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was sentenced to 15 years. That's it? Yeah, that was my reaction. Too. Oh, man. Wow. On the same day, NASA announced the crew of the Apollo 1. Oh, boy. Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Robert Chafee, all of whom would die. And you mentioned it, I think, when the last episode, a couple of episodes ago, aired. Was oh, right that's when right. When the Apollo One accident had happened, uh, it was the day after tomorrow's yesterday aired. Is when the Apollo One fire happened, and now that I'm looking at the date here, the final day of filming for Devil in the Dark was January 25th, three days before the Apollo yeah. One fire. And uh, this is something that's just we've been talking about it in the last several episodes. Is the conflict going on between Israel and Syria, and now Israel and Syria? met at the United Nations in order to create a demilitarized zone and have at least a truce. Well, we had our characters trying to resolve conflicts on other planets. We have Israel and Syria finding a way to, if not resolve their conflict, at least not have it escalate. Well, one thing about, about Devil in the Dark, and you know, after all these years, so much has been written about, about Star Trek, specifically the making of the series. There have been so many books. And sometimes the books kind of get it wrong when it comes to the order in which these episodes are produced. Now, we've been, we've been doing this series, Enterprise Incidents, in production order. And just like some of the books kind of get it wrong, and I know when we were posting about A Taste of Armageddon and Spacey, they're like, well, what didn't A Taste of Armageddon film before Spacey when actually it was the other way around? And that's also the case with This Side of Paradise and Devil in the Dark. Sometimes the websites and the books kind of get them flipped. And that is because Devil in the Dark was supposed to film first with Ralph Sinetsky. And in addition to uh, wanting to have Joseph Pevney direct it instead, it was also a case of necessity for set designer Matt Jeffries, who needed more time to design the caves. So that is another reason for the flip. And that's another reason why Sinetsky wound up directing this side of paradise. But uh, as the other thing is that during the closing credits 
for The Devil in the Dark, when this episode aired on March 6th, 1967, that's where it was announced that Star Trek would be renewed for a second season. Boy, that is that must that moment of I got another year of work must feel really good for all these people. You know what that means? We have another year of work, too. That's true. That's an excellent point. Uh, would you like to get into the show? Let's do it. All quiet. Didn't see a thing, Chief. Nobody ever does. Whatever the thing is, it's already killed 50 people. Is this the first episode that doesn't open with our main people? And not only is it the first episode that doesn't open with our main people, it is the only episode of the original series in which the teaser doesn't have anyone from the crew. We don't see the Enterprise. Now, the conscience of the king, we didn't see the Enterprise. We weren't on the bridge. Right. But we saw, we Kirk. saw Kirk. You know, this episode, we don't see anybody. We only hear about the Enterprise coming to the rescue. Well, and that's what's going on is we're in these caves. We don't know exactly what's happening. There's a guy who's on guard or something. Daniel Toshmitter, keep your phaser in your hand at all times. What good will that do? You saw what happened to Ed Appel when he took a shot at the thing. How about all those other people? And I love this line. Realize before how dark it is down here. And because what's so interesting about this movie is this is a horror movie setup. This is a monster movie setup. That's what we're in right now. It, it, is a, it is a monster. They refer to it as a monster throughout the episode. They refer to it as a creature. So what we have here is it's now Schmitter's turn to take watch. Schmitter is played by Bill Elliott. And Chief Engineer Vandenberg, who assigns him to his post, is played by Ken Lynch. Ken Lynch had been acting for many, many decades. His first movie uh, he didn't get credited, but his first movie was actually 1947's Gentleman's Agreement with oh, Gregory Peck. Great movie. Great movie. Also great movies. North by Northwest. Yeah. And Torah, Torah, Torah. I love that movie. On TV, Ken Lynch could be seen in the likes of Perry Mason, Arrest and Trial, The Fugitive, Gomer Pyle, The Big Valley, The Virginian, and Bonanza. Schmitter in this episode, now that he is uh, being in charge of taking his post by himself, I have to say. Yeah. Like, come on. Well, like, bad idea. If these people just keep getting knocked off and they already they already lost 50 people, are you really going to leave this guy alone? That's not fair. But that's also horror movies things. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you always leave the pr- What are you doing? Why are you there? Get out of the house. What, don't you know there's a killer on the loot? Like, it's classic horror movie stuff. And he gets let, left alone. He's scared. And we hear that they can come rescue him in three minutes. And his response is, That can happen in three minutes. And a lot does happen in three minutes. And it's like, as soon as they go away, we hear a weird sound. And again, another classic horror movie thing of, look behind you. Stop walking away. Why are you putting your back to this sound? And then he turns at the last moment, screams, and something happens. Another great device that is used in horror films and even mainstream films like Jaws, you don't see the menace until much, much later into this episode. And that is a powerful effect that still works because it is the imagination that is the best special effect to scare you. And that is very effective in this episode. And I have to say the only way to watch Devil in the Dark is in the dark. I make sure whenever I watch this episode, it is at night and all the lights are out because, first of all, I mean, it looks great because you don't have any outside light distorting the TV. But this is uh, 
uh, an episode that I'm like, nope, I'm watching this only in the dark. That's awesome. Then Vanderberg and our other guys come back and the camera pushes in and we hear Schmidler. Like the rest of you. Burn to a crisp. You don't see Schmidler. You only see the horrified look on Vandenberg's face, and that's all you need to see. Well, and that, again, is classic horror movie stuff. And we're back in Act 1, and we hear that this is a Pergeum production station, and we have an establishing side of the colony, and now we have our big three beaming down. And I think at this point, it's really settled in. You know what I mean? That it's, it is these three are the main characters of Star Trek. The big three. I love that image of seeing Kirk and Spock and McCoy beaming down to any planet because we've seen it we, or, or we will come to see it many, many times throughout the second and third seasons. Now, in the early story outlines that Gene Kuhn wrote, the Enterprise is limping to Janus 6 after being damaged by King of Guess. No, uh, I, I don't know. A uh, meteor shower. Oh, of course. Another meteor, meteor shower. shower. So this was something that they were going to use in the setup to a taste of Armageddon when the Enterprise was approaching a mini R7. And now that is another uh, setup that they were going to use for this one. So they were going to get there only to find the mining operation shut down, raising the stakes for Kirk, because now it's a race against time to save the Enterprise. But NBC's Stan Robertson, who was assigned to Star Trek, uh, just like he didn't like that idea for a taste of Armageddon, he did not like that idea for Devil in the Dark. He suggested the change, and Gene Kuhn made the change. I think it's a good choice, and I think it kind of shows a little bit more of what the Enterprise does. It's, it's a positive, we're going to help out, rather than a negative, we're damaged, um, which they use a lot. That happens a lot in various versions of Star Trek. And what we get is a whole bunch of exposition that this is, that they, this is an important mining station, that people depend on this Pergeum on a whole bunch of different planets. We find out that this started about three months ago when they opened up a new level. First, the automatic machinery, piece by piece, started to almost disintegrate. Metal began dissolving away. There was no reason for it, and our chemists were unable to analyze the corrosive agent. Now, there's a lot of exposition in this episode. Yeah. Not in a bad way. It still works because Vandenberg and his people have to brief Kirk, Spock, and McCoy on exactly what's going on so they know what they are up against. But that is why I think this episode, Devil in the Dark, more than a lot of the other other episodes from the original series, this episode really does truly feel like a radio play. Mm. Like when I taped this on my tape recorder when I was a little kid, I knew exactly what was going on because everything was being explained to me. And that was okay. I mean, I still right. I still don't see that as a flaw in the episode. It's just worth pointing out that it is a very written episode that uh, in which a lot is explained as it's going on. Yeah, absolutely. At first, the deaths were down deep. They've been moving up toward our levels. The last man died two days ago, three levels below this. I'd like to examine the body. We kept it for you. There isn't much left. I love every time <laughs> Vandenberg says, uh, or Crest, Seertor Crest, that's his thing. <laughs> well, Vandenberg is uh, angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he lost 50, now 51 people. <laughs> Who else has seen this? I have. This is Ed Appel, chief processing engineer. That is Brad Weston, who plays Ed Appel. Ed Appel's wearing that purple mm-hmm. mining outfit uh, compared to the uh, yellow one that uh, Vanderberg wore. Now, Brad Weston was on TV for shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, which was sort of written by uh, Roddenberry, 77 Sunset Strip, and The Virginian. 
but I did not know this until I was doing my research for this episode of Enterprise Incidents. At one point, Steve, Gene Roddenberry was considering casting Brad Weston as a regular on Star Trek because, mm. I don't know, for some reason he felt like this would help Star Trek appeal to a younger audience, to younger viewers. Oh. But fortunately, Roddenberry held off until Walter Koenig crossed this path and he was cast as Chekhov starting in season two. You know what? I got to say, like, since we've been doing this, now we're yet to the end of the of the epi- of the season for the first season on Enterprise Incidents. I cannot wait to get into the Chekhov episodes. Yeah, me too. And it's it's so funny because it's so funny to think that he's not in the first season and that he is as much a part of Star Trek as any of the others. Uh, unlike some of the other people that show up, Chekhov is part of the group. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely agree. Describe it. I can't. I only got a glimpse of it, but it's big and shaggy. Ed shot it. Oh, you mean shot at it? No, I mean shot it with this. And he holds up a phaser one. And Spock says, fascinating. So clearly the phaser one is not powerful enough to to stop this creature. So they're going to need phaser two or just multiple phasers. This thing is clearly very, very strong. And like, it's kind of at that point that I noticed that the miners, specifically Ed Appel, he is really being ingrateful to Kirk. You know, Kirk is being brash and he's like, don't worry. That's why we're here, Mr. Vandenberg. We'll, 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 we're here to help. We'll figure this out. And Ed Appel is like, yeah, you think you're so tough, don't you? What are you going to bring a starship down here? Uh, like, dude, hang on a minute. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I get it because they've been dealing with this thing a lot and they've been trying their best and not getting anywhere and their people are dying. So this cocky guy coming down saying no problem. Like, no, this is a big problem. You don't get what we're dealing with. And then Spock notices something. Mr. Vanderberg, what is this? It's a silicon nodule. There are a million of them down there, no commercial value. But a geological oddity, to say the least. This is one of the brilliant strokes of this episode. In Act One, we see that Spock notices this round thing, this silicon nodule. We don't really find out what these things are until Act Four. Right. But throughout the course of this episode, we are inching towards the big reveal. It's not some flip, uh, which would have been effective because that's certainly been done in other episodes, but it is a gradual, gradual progression toward that big reveal. And I love that Spock is already, he's already kind of there. And that is what makes Spock's mind so brilliant and essential to the triumvirate of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, I mentioned this idea of being, the audience can be with the characters, they can be behind the characters, they can be ahead of the characters. So we can know what they know, they can know more than us, or we can know more than them. The way they handle this is that we have the opportunity to figure it out before Kirk knows. Because if we're paying attention to Spock and we see these round things, not, and, and it's one of the things that you do sometimes when you're writing, it's like, I don't need everybody to figure this out. But if one out of five people figure it out before, that's awesome because they're going, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. And that's really exciting. Like Spock's a little ahead of us, but we might figure it out before Kirk. But when you first saw this, do you remember being with Spock or do you not? Do you remember thinking like, where is this going? Like, what's he what's he thinking? Of course, I can't know, but I think I figured it out. I really do. I think I because there's moments in the. Right before the reveal, particularly when Spock is saying everything's over, when he's doing the mind meld, where I think it's, you can figure it out by then. See, I vividly remember 
when I when I first saw this in the the run through in production order on Channel 17 WPHL in Philadelphia in the complete versions, not the script versions. I remember having this thought of being surprised because I didn't know. I mean, of course, I was a little kid. Yeah, you know, I I mean, who's to say I might have gotten it now? I don't know if I was seeing this for the first time and at my age now. But I do remember like vivid memories that kind of just stick out. One of them being that I didn't know that this was what it is. Hmm. Well, and I don't remember. It's who knows if I figured it out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's what's so. It's so funny that that you have such good memories of the first time you saw these episodes. These episodes have always existed. I have no, no knowledge of seeing them the first time. There was no first time. Wow. Hmm. Well, there are only fragments of bone and teeth left, but the plant's physician agrees with me. A chemical corrosion, almost as if he'd been thrown into a vat of extremely corrosive acid. Strong enough to eat machinery? Strong enough to eat anything else the way you can think of. And we get another little bit of a clue, which is Spock is charted where all these incidents happen. And man, that thing must have moved really, really fast if it actually was able to do all this damage. Mr. Spock, give us a report on life beneath the surface. Within range of our sensors, there is no life other than the accountable human residents of this colony beneath the surface. Uh, At least no life as we know it. Another clue. Because, by the way, when you're watching a TV show and someone says, at least not life as we know it. You know, there's a life that's going to be a life form that we don't know. Otherwise, oh, we yeah. wouldn't have yeah. that kind of a line. Absolutely. Yep. And we have another guard. He's in front of something that looks like a radiation reactor kind of One thing. person again. One person <laughs> alone. Well, it's like Spock putting people out in Galileo 7 all <laughs> yeah, alone. Right, right. <laughs> this is a bad plan. And we hear the sound. And of course, he's got his back to us and turns around and something rises up and we get another scream. <laughs> But this wasn't just about killing this this person on guard. This was about putting everyone on the planet in jeopardy by stealing this main circulating pump, which is keeping the air purified to protect the the humans on the planet. Which I think we need to take a moment and say how smart the Horda must be to have figured this out. Oh, yes. The Horda didn't get handed the technical manuals like Khan did. You know, like how how does the Horda know that this one part inside this room that it's never been in is exactly what it needs to steal to, to threaten all these people? You're right, Steve. You're absolutely right. This isn't just some creature killing whatever moves. This is a living being with a motive. It is an intelligent life form that has a plan, this is the first indication that this menace is intelligent. Yep. Because in the script, Steve, but Mm. not filmed, there were scenes where we see things from the Horda's point of view. Specifically, we see that the Horda is watching Spock. Mm -hmm. The Horda is watching Kirk. Just by their mannerisms, the Horda the Horda knows that Kirk and Spock are kind of calling the shots in charge. And the Horda definitely knows that this phaser is bad news. You know, it just occurred to me, we talk about all these powerful species that we've run into, the Metrons and, you know, the Charlie X people and the Trelane people. And you know what? The Horda is a really advanced life form because it's got to be super, super smart to figure out everything that it figures out. It's, it is clearly super smart. And 
in some ways it is more sophisticated than the inhabitants on this planet, who, by the way, and I know we'll get to this, Steve, but they don't belong there. The Horda right. does. Absolutely. And that opens an entirely different conversation about this episode, one that I never considered while I was growing up watching it. By the way, when I form a colony on another planet that's far away from everything else, I don't think it's a good idea to have an outdated part that I don't have a replacement for that all of our lives depend upon it working and we'll die in a few hours if it stops working. I think you should have a spare. Absolutely. Not only should you have a spare, but while I was watching this episode to prep for this Enterprise Incidents, I thought, you know what? As much as I love the screenplay, I think this is a contrived element of it. Well, because instead of saying, man, that hoarder must be really smart, you could say that screenplay is not really making perfect sense. Absolutely. <laughs> you <yeah. know? laughs> That's another explanation for how the hoarder knows to steal this particular thing. Strong, we seem to have been given a choice. Death by asphyxiation. Death by radiation poisoning. But I do love when we call up to Scotty and say, hey, you got one of these circulation pumps? And he's like, no. No, sir. <laughs> I haven't seen one of those in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> can you rig one up? It's vital. Well, sir, I can put together some odds and ends, but uh, it won't hold for long. It's like odds and ends. Like, what? We, how is Scotty doing this? But this is a great example of one of the many, many reasons why Scotty earned his title as the Miracle Worker. I don't know if he was a miracle worker. He should have been able to make this thing work for more than 48 hours. That's what I think. But you could argue that the fact that he was able to make something sure. work at all, yep. he saved the day. Well, and it's interesting, too, is that all we've heard that the Horda has been doing has been dissolving machinery. And why would they believe that this part even still exists? That's a good point, too. And this is the thing. At this moment, they know the Horda is intelligent. It can't not be intelligent. Right. And Spock is onto that. Yeah. And we have multiple, multiple ticking clocks. So we have the circulating pump being gone, which means the reactor isn't going to keep working and we won't have air or we'll have radiation poisoning. We have a monster that's killing our people. And we have all of these planets that are dependent upon the pergeum that they're mining here. And so we got a lot of reasons. There's a lot of pressure on solving this problem. But guess what, Steve? There is no threat to the Enterprise. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so unlike an episode like uh, A Taste of Armageddon or Return of the Archons, where there was a threat to the Enterprise, we're seeing an example of Kirk being motivated by other issues at hand, and he is not being influenced by the, 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 the biggest threat, threat to yeah. him of all, which is the threat to the Enterprise. Yeah. So while I think the stakes certainly could have been raised if the Enterprise was damaged and needed stuff from the miners to repair it. I actually think that for the purposes of our chronology, of our discussions in which we talked about, well, how would Kirk react that the Enterprise was not, was not impacted here? We are seeing a great example of Kirk handling a situation in which the Enterprise is not threatened. I think it's great because there's so many shows and so many Star Trek shows too, where it's how are we going to endanger the world this week? You know, how is the enterprise going to be in trouble this week? And having a threat of which has a different flavor is really, really great. And we, we cut to a scene where we're having a conversation. It's almost like our briefing room conversations. You think the creature is trying to push the colonists off the planet? It would seem so. Funny you should mention the briefing room because this scene was originally written for the briefing room. And... There's something that's going to happen, a big surprise that is going to happen to one of our main cast members, an unforeseen tragedy that necessitated a bunch of production changes mm. to this episode. 
one of them being the revisions that Gene Kuhn actually rewrote. This was one of them. He originally wrote it for the briefing room, but he kept it in Vandenberg's office so they didn't have to take more time to fire up the stage, uh, stage nine, mm -hmm. where the briefing room was, that they could just keep everything on stage 10, which is where the offices of, and the caves of Janus 6 were. I'm really starting to get stressed out about what this tragedy is. You'll, you'll hear it very soon. Uh, what I think is interesting, you mentioned Jaws a while ago, and yep. I hadn't thought about it. There's so many parallels. Here's an interesting one. I always thought it was a great choice to not go back up to the Enterprise. One of the smartest changes Steven Spielberg made to Jaws from the book is that in the book, they go out on the Orca every day, and then they come home every night. And they have dinner and see their families, and then they go out on the Orca the next day, and then they come home. And they go. And what Spielberg said is, once they're out on the boat, they never come back, which is such a huge and important. It makes them isolated that they're having to deal with this monster all on their own. That's actually what's happening here. Once we're down on the planet, we never go back. You're right. We never see the Enterprise until the, the, the interior of the Enterprise anyway, till the very end of the episode. Because that's what you want in a monster story. We want to be trapped with the monster. If we have an escape route, then we're not trapped with the monster. It's not as tense. That is a great point. I never thought about that. I didn't either until you brought up Jaws and told me that this was originally going to be in the briefing room. Like we're in it with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. We are all trapped on Jaina 6. Yeah. We are all feeling that ticking clock. Well, it's a classic monster in the house story, except that the monster is not a monster. That's the, that's the big difference. But why now, Mr. Spock? These production facilities have been in operation for over 50 years. I don't know. There is a possibility. And as we're thinking about that, Spock walks back over to that nodule and we hear some music. Life as we know it is universally based on some combination of carbon compounds. But what if life exists based on another element? For instance, silicon. Spock just inching a little bit closer to his theory without crossing over to make his big reveal. And the reason for that is Dr. McCoy. <laughs> You're creating fantasies, Mr. Spock. Unnecessarily, Bones. I've heard of the theoretical possibility of life based on silicon, but silicon-based life would be of an entirely different order. And here's the thing, and it started with this episode, this idea of silicon-based life. It's in all sorts of science fiction stories, but the first place I heard it was here. And so I had to actually look up, well, why are we always talking about, so why? What, why? what is it about silicon? And what it is, is that the reason that carbon is such a good atom an element to base life on is it can bond with four different atoms at the same time. So it can create these super, super complicated strings of molecules. And that's why we can have these really complicated proteins that make up DNA. It's why we can have all these different kinds of food and nutrients. It's because carbon is so good at making complicated molecules. So the next element on the periodic table that can have four different bonds with four different atoms is silicon. Wow. That wow. is why people talk about that as the next one. And then I looked because I had to at articles like, well, is this really possible? And I, the, this is what the internet told me. There is no way you could ever have silicon-based life. Next article. It is totally possible that we could have silicon-based life. Next one. No way. Can't happen. Next one. Yes, we could have silicon. It just so obviously there was no consensus that I could find. If this and there was possible. no consensus back in 1966 while this was being developed because the prospect of, of silicon-based life was so far-fetched that there's even sort of the sort of disclaimer in the dialogue. I still think you're imagining things. You may be right, doctor, but at least there's something to go on. The other thing we find out is if it were silicon-based life, that's why phaser one had trouble shooting through it, whatever that means. But our people have phaser number two, which I could adjust to be more effective against silicon. 
Silicone-based life is physiologically impossible, especially in an oxygen atmosphere. So it is a stretch. It is something where comp-based life would have to exist in an, in an atmosphere and an environment that is not compatible with an oxygen nit- nitrogen atmosphere. Mm. But because the air is being developed in a in a manufactured way, maybe that's why mm. the creature is able to exist in the caves that the humans are. Anyway, they sort of uh, alluded to the impossibility of, of silicon-based life while mm. saying, you know, let's just go with it. <laughs> and that is how good exposition works too, is that we have an exposition through an argument. Is it possible? Is it not possible? And McCoy continues to mock Spock about this idea. Because that's what he does. And Spock continues to look at that nodule. You seem fascinated by this rock. Yes, Captain. You recall that Vandenberg commented there were thousands of these at a lower level. The level which the machinery opened just prior to the first appearance of the creature. Do they tie in? I don't know. Speculate. Spock is about to say something until he sees... McCoy, step forward. I have already given Dr. McCoy sufficient cause for amusement. I would prefer to cogitate the possibilities for a time. So they are doing a thing. It's like a writer's trick and one that I don't particularly like, but it it works pretty well here, which is that you want to keep information from the audience. And so you give a character a reason not to say the information that they would normally say to the people in the room. And so we've created this Spock not wanting to give McCoy a reason for amusement in order to withhold the idea that he's already had. And there's a certain point in the show where it's like, come on, he would tell Kirk at this point. He would not continue to be mysterious about this life and death thing. Unless he's actually waiting for more information to make an informed opinion, because he knows that Kirk trusts him. Kirk relies on him and he doesn't want to speculate until he has more information. I actually thought about that. Scotty shows up with a replacement pump, which he describes as a plumber's nightmare. (laughs) Scotty. (laughs) And our security guys, our red shirts have gathered and we're going to go talk to them. You are searching for some sort of creature which is highly resistant to phaser fire. Your phasers will be set on maximum. And remember this, 50 people have died. I want no more deaths. Except the bloody thing. Except the bloody thing. Like we're we're in the first part of this story where we are still in the most overt ways or the most subtle ways, establishing this creature, this unseen force, as something to be feared, something that we've got to kill. Well, and, and that's what's so interesting because it is the setup of a horror movie. There is a monster that's killing people. We've seen those things. And normally, what is a horror movie? Well, we we've got to get the monster. That's how we got to survive. And what's interesting about Vandenberg is he's just a little too bloodthirsty. Like it's, it, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. A little, I would say it makes me very uncomfortable, but at the same time, I understand his, yeah. his uh, frustration. I, I mean, he's, he's lost more than 50 people now. And plus there's so much pressure to get the mining a colony back online to get the progeum out to these other, these other worlds that need it. But I agree with you. I mean, it makes it, I understand it, but it does make me uncomfortable because not only is his aggression fueled by fear, it is also fueled by uh, a level of intolerance. Absolutely. For me, the way I would put it is that the discomfort builds over time. Like at the very beginning, it seems fairly reasonable to me. And then like with this line and killed the bloody thing, 
Um, well, now I kind of go, oh, that's a little, yep. seems, feels a little <laughs> bit aggressive. And this is, we get Kirk's orders. The creature may or may not attack on site. However, you must. It is vitally important that we get this installation back into production. And Kirk is absolutely, at this point in his captaincy of the five-year mission of the Enterprise, after the risk-taking that Kirk has taken to get the Enterprise out of very, very difficult situations. I feel like after a while, when you're in that position, it, it does get to you. It, it is building his ego. It is making him brasher, bolder, and in some ways more aggressive. And I think that certainly in the case of A Taste of Armageddon, and now uh, a little bit with uh, This Side of Paradise, and now, and now with Devil in the Dark, uh, he's, a little, he's become very gung-ho. You know what just occurred to me? I, you know, we've been talking about these episodes in continuity, and I'm going to bring up one that it's not, it's not in there. It doesn't really make sense, but it might be kind of fun, which is I think this episode could be seen as a direct evolution from Mantrap, which is that Mantrap is a monster story. We talked about when we did the episode that once they know this thing is the last of its kind, and once they know it's intelligent, they really should have tried to do something to save its life. Absolutely agree with you. And they didn't do it. And now we're going to transition our characters. They're going to learn the lesson here in this episode that they didn't learn in Mantrap. And maybe part of why they're ready to learn this lesson is because of their experiences with the Metreons and with some of the other things that have happened to them. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And we, I remember we talked when we were doing the Mantrap early in yeah. our run for Enterprise Incidents, you know, we talked about like, what if the man trap was done later in the season? Yeah. And I think if it was, it would have looked a whole lot like the devil in the dark. But at the same time, while it's, it would be nice to think that our heroes learn their lessons because of things that happen in the man trap and certainly in, in arena. Yeah. I don't think we've learned them fast enough with devil in the dark, despite the fact that there were signs written on the wall. Yeah. of what was coming. I think it does kind of make sense. And it's, it's making me in a really stupid way. Maybe I was wrong to say that they should have figured that out in Mantrap because if they had figured it out in Mantrap, we wouldn't have them figuring it out here. Now for, for continuity's sake, I love this uh, analysis, but for production's sake, this is Gene Kuhn. This totally, is absolutely 100%. positively Gene Kuhn because like in the, the first half of the first season, if uh, Captain Kirk saw something he didn't like, he'd shoot it, okay? Yeah. But Gene Kuhn stepped in and said, wait a minute, why do we have to shoot it? Why are we right always? Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should stop and think about, well, what do they want? What, what, what's their point of view? And that's what Gene Kuhn brought to Star Trek. And I think that's, that's why we're seeing the, the lessons, yeah. the flips, the, the arcs in these characters in these, in these more recent episodes. A life form, Captain. Bearing 111 degrees, elevation 4 degrees. One of our people. No, sir. Silicon. His, his theory is advancing. Yep. And now we have a red guy. Uh, he's doomed. He's doomed. alone. <laughs> he's <laughs> alone. doomed. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Turns his back and then turns around and screams. This, this is a very sneaky, big, shaggy thing. Now we are seeing a kill, a crew member from the Enterprise. So Spock and Kirk arrive on the scene. They see the, the outline of the body seared to a crisp. Mm -hmm. And this next moment is a great touch to the compassion, to the hum humanity of Kirk. He kneels down 
and he is clearly heartbroken over the loss of his crewman. Mm-hmm. And you hear, you hear Kirk's fanfare, the Enterprise Star Trek fanfare at that moment. It is a heartbreaking moment for Kirk to see him lose even one crew member. The other thing we find out is that these tunnels were made seconds ago. And the tunnel goes back as far as the eye can see, and they don't have machinery that could do this. This thing somehow can move through rock. And then they hear it and actually manage to turn around first. They hear it first. We've talked about this before. I I think in tomorrow's yesterday, when you hear the fanfare for the Enterprise before you see it, but it is such an effective, an effective device when you hear something, especially a menace before you see it. And in this case, I have so much to say about the scene, Steve. When we first see the Horda, Kirk and Spock have their backs. They turn around and they see the Horda come through the rock. And you, we, we finally get a, our, our first look at the Horda. So Kirk and Spock fire their phaser twos. And the Horda backs away, clearly in pain, and, and disappears. Now, first of all, the big dramatic reveal of the Horda that it is so shocking when we finally see it. Just like when we finally see, after hearing about the aliens, the invaders, quote unquote, the invaders in Arena, when Kirk is taken off the bridge of the Enterprise and planted on this asteroid, and that big reveal when the Gorn turns around at the end of Act Two. That episode was directed by Joseph Pevney. Mm. This episode mm. is directed by Joseph Pevney. This big reveal is happening towards the end of Act Two, right around the same point that we see the big reveal of the Gorn in Arena. We see the big reveal of the Horda in, in Devil and Dark, maybe a little bit earlier. It is such a great you know, shift in the episode, like a big dramatic shift that feels totally organic and natural. Now, let me tell you something about the Horda itself. Okay. It was created and designed by a Hungarian immigrant turned Hollywood stuntman named Janos James Prohaska. And he used a, a similar looking alien for The Outer Limits in an episode called The Probe. Now, before this episode was even written, Janos demonstrated his creation outside the Star Trek offices for Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, Bob Justman, and Dorothy Fontana. So they were outside the office and on the, the studio lot, on the studio street, and he demonstrated his creation. So Gene Kuhn saw this, and he was so inspired by what he saw, that's what made him write The Devil in the Dark in just four days. Wait, this wasn't designed for The Devil in the Dark? It was this that inspired The Devil in the Dark? Absolutely. Wow. This was that's... just this guy. He's just fooling around. He's like trying to create something cool. So it was that the, the creature, the Horda, came first and then the inspiration and to write it in four days by the master Gene Kuhn. That's so interesting. I also think this is another comparison to Jaws is the more we look at it, the sillier it looks. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's definitely does not age well. And it's not a thing that they could replace with a digital version that would look cooler. It is a big rubbery furry thing, but you know, it it is what it is. It's the Horda. (laughs) It's it's, this is, the Star Trek equivalent, also this scene, this moment, because of the way it scurries away after they just barely injured it. This is the Star Trek equivalent, Kirk and Spock saying, we're going to need a bigger boat. Totally. That's right. Um, one thing, by the way, and I don't, again, I don't think this is really in the story. 
why doesn't it kill Kirk and Spock? It's never had any trouble sneaking up on anybody up to this point. And the way it happens, it's actually coming up kind of slowly. Is it possible that the Horda was not coming to kill Kirk and Spock? Well, that goes back to what I, what I was pointing out about earlier versions, uh, that it was written that the Horda was observing Kirk and Spock. It knew, it knew that they were different from the miners. It already knew based on its observations of Kirk and Spock, their interactions with each other and the way that the Horda observed, maybe observed Kirk talking to the other, other security people. And certainly with Spock, that this is someone I could talk to, someone I could communicate with. So I do think that that is an excellent, excellent point. First of all, you have two people. You have Kirk and Spock. So unlike somebody being alone, the Horda had, had more of a match because there were two people. Also, they were armed with phaser two. Right. And they both fired their phasers. So instead of one person firing a phaser one, you have two people firing a phaser two. That's more power. And that's why the Horda was injured. But I agree completely with your observation that the Horda, we'll call it the creature for the moment because we don't know that it's called the Horda yet, was not out to kill them. So here's what I actually think. What I actually think is it's a, it's just, that's how they wrote it. And what I actually think, <laughs> well, yeah, what I actually think is that in the, the intention is that the Horda learns a bunch of stuff from the mind meld with Spock that it didn't know and now communicates better, but that's inconsistent with it being able to steal the circulating pump. And so I think it might be more logical, even if it wasn't the intention mm. that the Horda has a much more complicated plan that in fact knows that the enterprise people came from somewhere else and that it knows those are the two people I need to deal with. And it also notices that Kirk and Spock are wearing different, different attire right. than, than the miners. So clearly these people are different, but uh, after Kirk and Spock fire their phasers, the Horda with lightning speed uh, moves, creates another tunnel, moves through it very, very quickly and it's gone and it has disappeared. It has moved through the rock as easily as we move through air. I love the shots looking through the tunnel with Kirk and Spock kneeling down. And my note here is, yeah, this is a shot for young men's knees. Yeah. <laughs> this is not, I would not be comfortable kneeling like that for a long period of time over and over again to get a shot right. Um, <laughs> Did you get a shot at it? Yes, we took a bite off. And they even see that they knocked a piece of it off and they go and pick it up. And I just think it, it looks way too light. It just is. Re it's a really, really weird prop. But didn't it always didn't always kind of figure out that it was still moving? Oh yeah, yeah. No, totally. It does. Now, now, what was it moving? Because it was, it was still like this was the area that they cut shot off. off. Yeah, yeah. They shot off, and it, and it was, it was unstable. I remember when I was when I was younger, and I saw Kirk and Spock holding this this part of the creature that, and it was moving like that. I thought it was like alive. Uh, I didn't think of it as it was uh, still sort of simmering from being shot by by two phasers. And now we know we've confirmed a whole bunch of stuff. It is silicon based. It is resistant to phasers. It can be hurt. And then this last speech from Kirk. We knew it was a killer. Now it's wounded. Probably in pain somewhere back there. There's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. Oh, what a great, great closing act to, you know. The, the, the act breaks for, for the original Star Trek are just so, so, so great, especially those first two seasons. I've run a complete spherical check on all life forms, Captain. Radius 100 miles. I've located our men, all of them. And I've located one creature moving rapidly through native rock bearing 201. And that is all. One creature in 100 miles. Exactly. 
And Kirk says that's far too many to be cut by one creature in an ordinary lifetime. And it's like, you don't know what an ordinary <laughs> lifetime is for this creature. Um, we'll find out. And we're dealing with more than one creature, despite your tricorder readings. Or we have a creature with an extremely long lifespan. Or it is the last of a race of creatures which made these tunnels. The last of its kind. Yep. The buffalo. The buffalo. So while Kirk and Spock soon do learn they're not there yet, they have completely disregarded, almost forgotten about their experience with the Saw creature from planet M113. Right. And they are not yet at that point where they are able to express empathy and compassion that they have displayed in like Charlie X or Arena. Or maybe... Spock has been thinking about that salt creature since then and has regretted the choices that were being made because that's why, because what he says right here is if it is the only survivor of a dead race to kill it would be a crime against science. But Kirk is like, no, we have a job to do. We have to protect the miners. We have to get the Progeum back online. Dozens of worlds depend on the Progeum. I'm sorry, Mr. Spock. But I'm afraid the creature must die. And Spock gives in almost too easily for the moment. For the moment. I see no alternative myself, Captain. It merely seems a pity. You know what occurred to me, by the way, watching this this time? I never thought about this as an environmental-themed show. But in fact, it is. Because this is industry versus nature. We have uh, a habitat or an animal that will be damaged or driven to extinction. And for economic reasons, we have factories that need to do that. And finding that balance is one that we're dealing with all the time in our world. The other thing I thought about, and by the way, that is absolutely, absolutely true. The other thing I thought about is you have natives to this land and they are being encroached upon yes. by the West. Yep. All it's all here. It's all here. Well, and the thing too is the fact of Spock saying this line about it being a crime against science, that's all putting us, the audience, on that idea. You know what I mean? Like I think at that moment, that is setting up what's going to happen in the rest of the episode. And this is where I think that Kirk has gotten too brash in his command that he is not willing to consider consider Spock's theory and his suggestion, even though he's already experienced a kind of similar situation with the salt, the salt vampire. By the way, the next cut into the next scene is really weird because it's all, it really breaks the rules and it doesn't, it doesn't really work, which is that we're with Kirk and Spock and Spock's just said, yeah, I don't see an alternative. And then Kirk is kind of in a close up, and then he turns into another close up, and we're now with a whole bunch of people. Cause he's now talking to the, to the security crew. And it's like, it's, it, you, you really never do that because it feels like, wait, was the crew always there in this room or he and Spock, how has time passed? It's very, it's a very disorienting cut. Well, well, Spock says uh, that the search team has gathered in the main tunnel. Right. And then Kirk just turns and he's looking at them. It's a, we it's a weird cut. All right. Now, here we are with Kirk and the security guards hmm. in the main tunnel. This was filmed on day three. And this was the day that William Shatner got a very bad phone call from his mother that his father, Joseph Shatner, died suddenly Ooh. while in Florida. Oh. So right before the scene was filmed is when Shatner got the news. Oh. Now everyone on the set was like, go, go to Florida. We'll stop. We'll shut down. 
Well, Shatner could not get a flight out to Florida until later that evening from L.A. So he couldn't leave even if he really, really, really wanted to. So what did William Shatner do? He said, let's keep going. I'm here. I can't leave. Let's keep filming. Let's keep working. I got, I, I got to stay here anyway. As difficult as it now will be, it'll be a distraction. So he kept working, and the scene where Kirk is briefing the other security guards, that was filmed right after he got the news. Joseph Pevney, the director, said at that time, about that time, rather, that Shatner was very shaken, and Leonard, Leonard Nimoy, was very good to him at that point. He was with him all the time and able to give him great comfort. The day after this happened, day four, more scenes were shot that didn't involve Kirk. On day five, the cast and crew stayed home and the insurance paid the bill. So that's why uh, this episode didn't go more over budget than it actually did. I bet that's why it's a, re- a weird cut, is I bet they had shut down a bit and then came back in and they didn't want to take up as, they wanted to take up as little of Shatner's time as possible. And th- so they didn't shoot a, tr- a traditional establishing shot. And that's why we cut into the scene in a weird way. Absolutely. That's, that's a really good point. Like maybe they thought they would, would shut it down. And he said, let's, let's keep going. So that, oh, okay, everybody, you know, back to work. Yeah. But, but I have to say, like, you know, we talked about, I think it was during court martial where we talked about how William Shatner was going through a difficult period right. because his marriage was not working. And, you know, he's got three, three kids, three daughters. And now suddenly on the set, while he's filming an episode, he gets word that his father has passed away. That's a lot. That is a lot of grief to go through at once. And he's going through it while he's going through the rigors and demands of being the first lead on a very challenging, complex, and groundbreaking series. The kind of pressure that he must have been under, I, I, I just can't imagine. This is the thing about being an actor that people don't understand is that, first of all, it might seem glamorous, like the lifestyle might be glamorous, but actual work on a movie set is not glamorous. It's usually hot, long hours, uncomfortable conditions, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. For actors, also a lot of boredom because you're just waiting around a lot. And you have to go up in front of the camera and be happy, be playful, be romantic, no matter what the hell is going on in your life. Look at the episode itself. Yeah. What, watching this, would you know? No. That, that this actor had just experienced a life-changing tragedy in the middle of filming? Nope. Absolutely not. Never would have occurred to me. That is a testament to, for one thing, it says so, so much about Shatner's character that he said, no, let's keep going. It says so much about his talent and his commitment and his dedication to his craft that he does not skip a beat at all. There is nothing to indicate that there was any kind of massive right. tragedy and trauma and despair that he would be feeling at this moment. We have another scene where he's giving instructions to the security guys. By the way, maybe a few too many. There's a lot of this kind of a scene in yep. this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's so interesting in this scene is as Kirk is giving his orders about where to go, stay in pairs, finally, he said stay in pairs, so we're not splitting, sending out people alone. This particular group will move out beyond that area in all directions in an effort to surround it Possibly capture it. Possibly capture it. The security guards look up at Spock and Kirk looks up at Spock and then Kirk corrects him and says, 
Your orders are shoot to kill. Protect yourself at all times. And Spock has a reaction to that. The security goes away, and I think this scene is great. Capture it? I don't recall giving any such order. You did not, sir. I merely thought that if the opportunity arose... I will lose no more men. The creature will be killed on sight, and that's the end of it. What's so interesting is this is Kirk and Spock to some degree in Arena. Because in Arena, they're heading off, and Kirk is like, we got to kill it. And Spock is going, whoa, whoa, we might not quite understand it. So Spock is uh, definitely ahead in this episode. And this is absolutely, uh, I was going to bring this up too, and you absolutely beat me to it. This is a recall from Arena, where when they're chasing the Gorn to the uncharted solar system, uh, Spock suggests, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's maybe just a hot pursuit enough will be. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and Kirk says, oh, no, no, there's no time for that. He shuts him down. Yep. And, and what does he do in this episode? He shuts him down. Both episodes were written by Gene Kuhn, mm. both episodes directed by Joseph Pevney. But, but for the sake of our purpose on Enterprise Incidents, to see that Kirk has not learned from the experience of Arena is uh, a flaw to his character, but not a terrible flaw because he does eventually learn. And now Kirk, subtly, not so subtly, is trying to get rid of Spock. I want you to assist Scotty in maintaining that makeshift circulating pump. And Spock is so shocked. What? (laughs) I beg your pardon? You heard me. It's vital that we keep that reactor in operation. Your scientific knowledge is not needed there, sir. Mr. Scott has far more knowledge of nuclear reactors than I do. You're aware of that. What I love about this scene is they both know what the other one is doing. It's, and Kirk knows that Spock knows what he's trying to do, which is he's trying to sideline him. He's suddenly gone. I don't trust you at this moment to do the right thing. See, I thought he was trying to protect Spock here by Mm. taking him out of the danger. Because of what he says of both of them being uh, at risk? Yeah, like sort of like both of us can't be killed by this thing, so we should split up. And he put Spock in a safer situation by having him help Scotty. It never occurred to me, it never occurred to me that Kirk was, because of Spock's actions to capture it instead of killing it, that Kirk was was showing like, you know, maybe maybe he should not be involved if he's going to, if I can't trust him to do what I order him to do. That's always what I thought because it comes right after that moment. And maybe this is a good question for uh, those of you listening is, do you think that Kirk was sending Spock away in order to protect him? Or do you think it was because he wasn't, didn't trust him? Head over to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know what is Kirk's motive at this moment. Captain. There are approximately 100 of us engaged in this search against one creature. The odds against you and I both being killed are 2,228.7 to 1. I love that at this moment of drama, after people had been dying, there's a shift in tone, a moment of levity. The chemistry between Shatner and Nimoy is palpable. Yep. That just as it, as it always, always was. And will continue to be throughout the, you know, up until Star Trek VI in 1991, uh, this moment of levity. And it's also kind of a taking a deep breath after the intensity of what we've experienced for more than two and a half acts. Is this the first of Spock giving us the odds? Oh, wait a minute. I'm trying to think if we've heard him do that yet. Have we heard Spock give the odds? That is a great question. Somebody let us know on our Facebook page. 
Was there an episode shot before Devil in the Dark where Spock quoted the odds down to the point? Or is that something new that Gene Kuhn brought to the table? Well, and what's funny is there's no way he could figure out these odds. Like, there's no way you have enough information to come up with that accurate an odds of them both getting killed. But Spock can do it. But Spock (laughs) apparently could do it. And I love the the little beats between them. 2,228.7 to 1. Those are pretty good odds, Mr. Spock. And they are, of course, accurate, Captain. Of course. The other thing I like about this little bit of banter is that Kirk and Spock are having fun. The characters are enjoying each other's banter. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And now we hear that the brilliant improvisation from the miracle worker has given up the ghost. And so we're start, we got to start evacuating the colonists to the enterprise, but the, the miners aren't leaving. And so this is interesting. Kirk says, we don't have enough phasers for you. There are 428 people on the enterprise. Shouldn't that, doesn't that mean that there are 428 phasers? Can't I, they beam more phasers down to them? I don't know that every that there's a phaser for every single person on the Enterprise. You know, it's like, is there a phaser for McCoy and Nurse Chapel? And I don't know about that. But it seems to me there would be more phasers. It than seems like yeah. a little bit of a contrived moment. Yeah. But for the purpose of, of drama and, and keeping the stakes high, it, yep. it does work. Captain, we are being watched. Spock's intuition was always right on. Remember in the Apple? Mm. There was a scene in the Apple where Spock, Spock also knew that they were that they were being watched. But this is... How does he know that they're being watched here, though? There's... Hey, Spock has a a lot of telepathic kind of powers, so to speak. Okay. That we're going to see on display here very, very shortly. But this is supposed to complement some of the scenes that were not shot, where we see Kirk and Spock from the Horda's point of view, Mm. where she knew that Kirk and Spock were figures of authority. And that is why even after Kirk and Spock shoot this creature, it still knows to connect with one of them. And we come to two tunnels and we're, Spock's going to take one and Kirk is going to take the other. So we're now splitting up exactly what you're not supposed to do when you are in a horror movie. That's right. Yeah. Don't split up. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> um. And I love I love the shot as they go into the tunnels and moving through the tunnels. And th- here here's a quick filmmaking thing. Do you know the term the line or crossing the line or the 180 degree rule? Uh, you'll tell me. So what it is, is is basically how you make sure that screen direction is correct. So if I'm shooting a scene with you and I talking to each other and I have the camera over to my left, which is to your right. In that shot, I would be on the right side of the frame looking towards the left and you would be in the left side of frame looking towards the right. Anything I shoot that's on that side of us is on the correct side of the line. If I suddenly brought the camera over to my right, now suddenly I switch sides and I am on the left looking right and you are on the right looking left. And if we're cutting shots of us together where we cross the line, even if you and I are looking at each other, which we are right now, it would look as if we're both looking the same way and you're looking at the back of my head. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the reason I bring this up, there's only one tunnel. They only had one tunnel. All they did was they moved the camera from one side of the line to the other. So Kirk looks like he's going left to right through the tunnel and Spock oh. looks like he's going right to left in the tunnel. And it just makes it look like they're two tunnels, but they're not. There's just one. All you had to do was move the camera from here to here. Well, That's in it. both cases, in both setups, Jerry Finnerman's lighting is perfect. Absolutely. On the whole layer of these silicon nodules of yours, hundreds of them. Find that most illuminating, Captain. 
Be absolutely certain you do not damage any of them. And this is where I go, he would tell Kirk. There's no reason whatsoever for him not to tell Kirk. He was about to. But oh. then there was there was the uh, that the cave kind of gave way. Oh, you're right. Yeah, because he yeah. says he has a theory, and the, and we kind of see a little bit of the horda, and then we see a, a cave in, and Spock calls him. Are you all right? And then yells, Jim, Jim. He doesn't just say Jim. He yells it um, emotionally. Yes, and it's 100. percent This is the real truth. This is what he, when I feel friendship for you, I feel ashamed. This is the real feelings coming out. You know. And it's so funny coming right after this side of paradise because, man, their feelings in there, you know, like, and they're really strong. They're, the the feelings in the side of paradise, yeah, Spock would have every reason to resent Kirk for bringing him out of that paradise, which would have affected their relationship moving forward for the next few years on the Enterprise. But it didn't. I find it extremely disquieting that your roof chose that particular moment to collapse. Please proceed with extreme caution. I shall quicken my pace. And at that moment, Kirk is staring down the dissolution, the, dis- the, the way the rock dissolves. And here he is now, face to face with the Horda again, only this time he is by himself. And Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, our brash hero, looks scared. And that is the end of Act 3. Act four, we're right back where we were, and he has his phaser aimed at the creature, and he gave the orders, shoot on sight, we must kill this thing, and he doesn't shoot. They're staring each other down. And I love that there's communication. He lowers the phaser a little bit, and the hoarder comes forward, but not that far. He raises it up, the hoarder goes back. They're talking to each other. They are communicating. Yep. They're having a staring contest. Who's going to blink? Mm -hmm. It's such a well-directed and well-acted scene. Kirk puts the phaser down. The Horda approaches. He puts the phaser back up. The Horda backs away. That's because the Horda had been watching them. Of course, the Horda was shot by Kirk and Spock. So this scene was shot two different days. Mm. The scene where we see Kirk face on, facing the Horda, they were shot after William Shatner returned from Florida. Mm-hmm. The scene where we see the Horda approaching Captain Kirk, those were shot on the day, day four, when Shatner was gone. Now, here's the thing that I'm not quite sure if it's correct, even though it's been written about everywhere in books and on websites. So the body double that was used to play Kirk from the back is identified as Eddie Paskey. Mm-hmm. Eddie Paskey, he was one of the security guards. Uh, that Kirk addressed earlier in the episode. Of course, Eddie Paskey, he was in 39 episodes, like right. Ralph Sinetsky pointed out. He was the one who said, hey, we're, we're, we're beaming down to the planet, to Captain Kirk in uh, this side of paradise. Uh, and, and he was actually Kirk's double in, in other scenes. But in this episode, if you are watching the episode in, in HD, like on Blu-ray or on like Netflix or Hulu or you know Paramount Plus, and you pause it, the, the back of the guy's head, it doesn't look like Eddie Paskey. And in Mark Cushman's book, These Are the Voyages, Part 1, Season 1, there's a behind-the-scenes photo of this, of this shot where you see a little bit more of the actor's face, and it does not look like Eddie Paskey. Hmm. So while everyone has identified the body double used while Shatner was gone, 
as Eddie Paskey, I'm not 100% sure if it was him. So anybody listening, if it is absolutely positively 100% Eddie Paskey, let us know on our Facebook page. Or if you're with me and you think that it does not look like Eddie Paskey, also let me know because I want to make sure I'm not alone on this. Kirk here. I've just read some fresh signs. The creature is in this area. It'll take a life form reading. It's not necessary, Mr. Spock. I know exactly where the creature is. Where, Captain? Ten feet away from me. <laughs> and this is what I think this is fantastic screenwriting. Up to this point, Kirk has been the shoot it on site person that has been what he said over and over again and spock has been the reluctant maybe capture it and at this moment spock says kill it captain quickly spock is acting emotionally yep he is not acting logically his friend is in danger and maybe now kirk is starting to get it a little bit maybe he is thinking back to the salt vampire maybe he is thinking back to the uh the asteroid encounter with the Gorn, maybe he's starting to think about, wait a minute, something is up here. It could attack me. It's not. It is having a, an intelligent reaction to the phaser. There is something intelligent here. He's starting to observe and really absorb the situation and the uniqueness of the situation now. You know what's interesting? How many times does Kirk, at the moment of the kill, choose not to kill? It's almost like he's decided that we're not going to kill today because you think about with Gary Mitchell, he's got that rock. He's about to kill him and then hesitates with the Gorn. He hesitates with the Corbomite maneuver. He could kill the Viserius or he thinks he can. And at that moment, he stops and shows compassion. Absolutely. That's, I'm glad you brought up the Corbomite maneuver because in uh, Balance of Terror, he talked about the fear of the unknown. In the Corbomite maneuver, we see Balak. And we fear him, even though towards the end, when the uh, Fisarius, the smaller ship, is in trouble, we see compassion. Kirk goes in to help. The stakes keep getting bigger for Charlie X on the Enterprise. Yeah. And then Kirk shows compassion. Yep. Kirk shows compassion towards the end of Arena. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm not going to kill you. He shows compassion. Now, after all of those experiences, why didn't Kirk learn from those mistakes sooner than this point in Devil in the Dark? Well, I have a theory. Okay. So, Balok, Charlie Evans, the Gorn, they all look very different, but they are all bipeds mm. with a head, with a torso, with two arms. Yep. The Horda looks very different from that. And the Horda has killed 50 people. So, I think because the Horda looks so very, very different, it takes a little bit longer for Kirk, especially Kirk to wrap his head around that maybe there are, there is an intelligence to this thing because it looks so much more different than the other things because it looks so much more uh, more unknown than the other things even though he learned his lesson a few times already it takes him just a little bit longer to wrap his head around that something is definitely up here or else it would have killed me already I like it absolutely and clearly this is the moment it's the moment of him not firing it's the moment of this communication through the phaser he's not shooting it and spock is rushing to get there and then we cut out to vanderberg and his men and they want to get past 
the red guys. They're after blood. And this is where, you know, they are the townspeople in Frankenstein. They are the angry villagers. And what's so great is I think because we were sort of with them at the very beginning of the show, because there's a monster killing our guys, and now they have become a threat. You know, now that we're with Kirk and we're not going to kill it, we're going to try to make a deal with it. Now, suddenly they are creating the tension. And what is another great aspect of horror going back to the likes of whether it's Frankenstein or Night of the Living Dead, that the humans, that man is more dangerous than the threat that we are yep. facing. And I, and I, I just want to give a shout out to the security chief, Giotto, played by Barry Russo. I, I think he's great. He's I kind of too. a tough, tough guy, tough security guy. Actually, he's exactly the kind of person you want to have as a security yep. person. And the actor Barry Russo wound up playing Commodore Wesley uh, in the episode, The Ultimate Computer. But I actually like him. But, but I never thought about the Frankenstein aspect of Devil in the Dark until this moment. And this creature, this thing that has been killing people and looks so, so different, is, is actually showing more intelligence than the very beings that the Enterprise was sent to Janus 6 to rescue. We're still in this standoff, and now the creature communicates something else, which is it shows its wound, which I think is a really interesting, like, it, it exposes its vulnerability, essentially, you know? Yeah, absolutely it does. And Spock comes in. No, no, don't you? It's so funny. I wrote down, he has the perfect, fascinating expression on his face. And then he comes over and says, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other thing we notice is there's a whole bunch of nodules all around them. Those nodules are actually toy bouncing balls. They got a whole lot of them oh, and they painted them gold. Great. It means something to you? Possibly the answer, Captain. I'm not certain. Again, at this point, definitely. You he should have said something. Just tell him what you're thinking. <laughs> but instead, Spock says, Captain, you're aware of the Vulcan technique of the joining of two minds. I love that on top of everything in this episode, we get to see another display of Spock, even though he's doing a mind meld like we saw him do in Dagger of the Mind. And even though we saw him use a sort of telepathic power to influence a security guard to free them on the Meaning R7 and a Taste of Armageddon, now we are seeing Spock do a mind meld with something that is not human. And it is a big, big risk. I think it's so interesting that our logical, unemotional people have this thing, which is a complete pulling down of their barriers. That's a really interesting combo that the people with the strongest barriers are also the people that are capable of bringing them down and connecting on this unbelievably profound level. And he walks forward. Pain! Pain! Nemo is so good at this. He's perfect. And I'm just picturing you're on the set. There's this weird shaggy carpet that you need to do this. And they take it 100% seriously. And it must have seemed and felt so ridiculous at times. But also part of these scenes, because they were shot with the Kirk's back to the camera, part of these scenes mm. were shot while Shatner was away. So in, in addition to being a very challenging and a very bold scene, it was also a scene that was shot under the duress for the cast and crew who knew that, that their lead actor was dealing with a very, very personal tragedy. Pain. And then he falls back almost into Kirk's arms and says, That's all I got, Captain. Waves and waves of searing pain. And at that moment, the Horda moves, and it moves over to a rock where it is going to attempt to communicate with Kirk and Spock, and it burns three words very short words into a rock. 
no kill I. And as Kirk correctly points out, does that mean that it is not going to kill us or a plea for us not to kill her? And what's interesting to me, too, is which way do you read it? It could say no kill I. It could say I kill no. That's a great point, too. Which I it, always thought that it was letting them know that it wasn't going to kill them. But that's what I mean, is that Kirk says, which one does it mean? Mm -hmm. No kill I sounds more like a plea. Please right. don't kill me. Don't kill me. I kill no sounds like I'm not going to kill you. Right, right. You know? And I mean, it, it clearly knows English enough to say something like that, but maybe it doesn't know English enough to know that those three words should be should be swapped. Well, and reading, are we reading from top to bottom or bottom to top? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yep, yep. In my brief contact with the creature's mind, I discovered it as a highly intelligent, extremely sophisticated animal, in great pain, of course, because of its wound, but not reacting at all like a wounded creature. It calls itself a horda. A horda. Bingo. There we go. We know what it is, what she is. She is a horta. Why would you have a name that you call yourself when you don't have a mouth and don't speak? Because it's an intelligent creature. Right. But how does it have a name that can be spoken when it doesn't speak? Well, if it doesn't speak in a way that you and I speak, but it speaks in its own way, because it, it does communicate, eventually there's going to be a lot of order running around on sure. this planet. So it does communicate. It just communicates in a way that is different, but it does communicate because it is now, she is now communicating with Kirk and Spock. Yes. I think for, for me, it's like the, uh, in alternative factor. So this is, you, you live in the antimatter universe. Yes, I am in the antimatter universe. It's like, <laughs> no, no one would call that. It's that the, the Horta would not have a reason to have a name that you could speak in, in, in the way that we speak, but it doesn't matter. It's fine. Mr. Spock, we need that retardation mechanism. You must reestablish communications with it. Captain, it has no reason to give us the device and apparently every reason for wishing us off this planet. Yes, I'm aware of that. If we could only win, it's confidence. And this is very much Corbomite, is that now we're showing compassion towards the enemy. Absolutely. The enemy are. is in trouble. We need to help him out. And he calls McCoy. <laughs> Quite to the rescue. It doesn't tell him what he wants. He says, just bring your medical stuff. And McCoy goes, someone injured? Never mind. Just, just, just come, come down. over. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mr. Vandenberg and his men are here, and they're pretty ugly. Shall I let him through? Under no circumstances. Allow them in here yet. The minute Doc McCoy gets there, send him through. Aye, aye, sir. And I like how Giotto says, aye, aye, Captain, closes his communicator, and you see him go to reach for his phaser before the cut to the next scene. And Spock is now going to have a real mind meld. But to do that, he's got to touch the creature. And how does, how does this creature kill people? By touching them. So it's a pretty scary thing. And he goes cautiously forward and he, his hands come into frame and then he leans in and starts the mind meld. Thousands. Devils. Eternity ends. He says devils. Hmm. After all these years, Steve, after all these years, rewatching this episode to prep for Enterprise Incidents, when Spock says devils i had an epiphany what's the name of this episode i i yes i know what your epiphany is it is devils in the dark okay who was the devil the humans that's correct the so, devil is not the creature the devil is not the horda the devil in the dark is man so i was going to say this at the end of the episode but this episode is so influential on me 
And I think it took me until I was in my late 30s before I realized that if there's one theme that has gone through almost everything I've written, it's the idea of when you look at the other side, you see it differently than you see it initially. And uh, my first plays had those themes. What I, I wrote was plays dealing with racism and those issues. Um, the first screenplay I wrote, uh, which was about an African-American Marine studying the martial arts in Japan after World War II, um, which was, you know, being with your enemy and then learning about them. Um, and I got hired to, on to the, my first documentary, which was a Great White Shark documentary. And the title of that documentary was Mind of the Demon. Oh. And the whole point of that, and that was with Fabian Cousteau's on CBS. Uh, and the whole point was the humans are the demon. That's the whole point of the show is that sharks are just swimming around doing their thing. They're mm -hmm, not evil. Mm -hmm. They're just eating that a shark's not doing anything different than a minnow or a tuna or anything else. It's just eating to live. The humans are the demon. Well, exactly what you just said about what is the other side thinking? Like, why are we always in the right? Like, like maybe we're in the wrong. Like, what's their point of view? What do they want? And I just think that that is such a great, a great touchstone that Gene Kuhn brought to Star Trek because that was a touchstone of Arena. It is a touchstone of Devil in the Dark. And it is also a touchstone of my single favorite all-time Star Trek episode, Metamorphosis, which just like The Devil in the Dark was written very quickly by Gene Kuhn, directed also by Ralph Sinetsky, who did uh, This Side of Paradise. And this is also something I thought about more recently, that if you take Devil in the Dark and you turn it into a love story, the result is metamorphosis. And mm. we will get to that conversation that in great is detail. That's an interesting, interesting statement. Yeah. And as Spock is reciting these painful words about murder and stopping them and the altar of tomorrow and the chamber of the ages, in comes McCoy. And man, what he walks into is like, what the heck is what going in on? The name of it's wounded badly. You've got to help. Help that. And Spock is continuing to go through this painful thing, and Kirk is continuing to try to get McCoy to work on it. And we get a classic McCoy line: "I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. You're a healer. There's a patient." But that line, technically, it's the first time McCoy said that I'm a doctor, not a dot dot dot, but he did sort of say a variation of that in the Corbomite maneuver. What am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? And now we hear cry for the children. For me, that's like the moment where you might clue in before. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. He um, says, he says uh, you know, go to the chamber of the ages, the vault of tomorrow. Sorrow for the murder children. And I love that. I, I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant thing. And here's the thing that I thought at this moment. The Horda is way more compassionate than we are. Because the Horda at this moment knows it could die. I think it's realizing that it probably can't win this war. It's thousands of children have been murdered in its mind by these people. And yet the Horda makes the choice to save our lives. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. What we're seeing with the Horda, uh, a wounded Horda, by the way, yeah, that it is that she, I keep saying it, but it is a, absolutely a she, that she is taking the first step mm -hmm. of communication. She is more sophisticated and complex 
and possesses an intelligence that is greater to that of the of the man that is just out for blood and wants to kill her. Yep. Yep. And Kirk goes into the this cave, sees lots of broken nodules. Broken, broken ones, yeah. yeah lots of them. And he finds the missing part. But I love the look on Kirk's face. He doesn't say anything. He gets it. He gets it. He sees the broken nodules and he gets it. They're eggs, aren't they? Yes, Captain. Eggs. And about to hatch. And now it all makes sense. The miners broke into the hatchery, destroyed a whole bunch of eggs. Of course the horde is going to attack. And the miners have had enough. And they basically distract our red guys and then fight their way through. It is absolutely Frankenstein. You're right. Um, and the miners come in and immediately they see the hoarder. They're ready to kill it. They say, shoot it, shoot it. Kill it! First man that fires is dead. That thing has killed 50 of my men. And you've killed thousands of her children. What? And it is the big epiphany for everyone watching this episode. I think the moment of that thing killed 50 of my men and you killed thousands of her children and the reaction from Vanderberg, I think that's just a perfect, perfect TV moment. Absolutely. He says, well, we didn't know. Yeah. That's how fast the angry villagers can become okay. The whole world for them just switched in that moment. And then Kurt comes up with the plan. <laughs> and his delivery of that plan is in such a aspirational way. Mm -hmm. This is the captain that I, I've said this before, I would follow into an active volcano. This is the Kirk who came up with the plan at the end of A Taste of Armageddon. And now here, here he is in another episode, teleplay written by Gene Kuhn, giving a great Gene Kuhn Kirk speech. Gentlemen, the Horta moves through rock the way we move through air, and it leaves tunnels. Greatest natural miners in the universe, seems to me, that we could make an agreement, reach a modus vivendi. They tunnel, you collect and process. This is another huge lesson for me, and important in the way I think, is that what Kirk has done is he's turned a zero-sum game into a non-zero-sum game. Um, and for those of you who don't know those terms, a zero sum game means there is a limited resource. And if I get more, you get less. So if we are splitting a pizza and I take two thirds of it, well, you only get one third. And if I take three quarters, now you're down to a quarter, whatever I get more of you get less of that's a zero sum game. The, the Horda and the miners were in a zero sum game. There's not room for both of us. And so one of them is going to have to destroy the other. And what Kirk has done is turned it into a non-zero-sum game where the, the, the parts, the sum of the parts can be greater than the parts alone, is that things are going to be better. There's, in fact, we get more pizza, essentially, because they're going to work together and everybody benefits from it. And just a, a, as another example of an episode that resonates just as strongly in, in the 21st century as it did in 1967 when it aired, you know, we have two sides that are out to annihilate each other over prejudice and fear. Uh, this, this episode could be seen as an allegory between the Americans and the Russians, as an allegory between the blacks and the whites, as an allegory between the Democrats and the Republicans. The list goes on and on and on, but it is because of compassion. It is because of communication. It is because of compromise. And it is, these are all lessons that we so, so, so clearly and dearly need to learn from. Now, I, I think by, by all rights, the miners should get off the planet. It is not their planet. It, is, it, is, it, belongs, to right. the, it belongs to the hoarder. Man doesn't belong there. Man, the only way man can stay there 
is with that pump, but to circulate an artificial atmosphere. The Horta are natives to the planet. So you could also look at it as an allegory for the advancement to the West, mm -hmm. taking Native Americans away from their land. But they're past that. The miners are not leaving. The Federation is not leaving. Right. So what we have here is, okay, how do we work together to compromise so we both get what we want? It's not ideal to the Horda, but it's acceptable uh, that we, we soon come to see. I'm really glad you brought up the all the different groups that just can't seem to understand each other and uh, not to get or at least I'm trying not to get political at all. But one of the things I think we're not very good at is realizing that even though we might strongly, strongly disagree on a whole bunch of stuff, that there are times where our interests align. And uh, one example for me is if you take a super left-wing hippie guy in their VW bus and they have their worldview and you take a super right-wing guy who's pro second amendment and has a gun rack in the back of his pickup truck. Those two people generally don't agree on very much, but the, this guy with the gun who might be a hunter and the hippie, they actually both care a lot about nature. And they both care about having healthy forests and good national parks because one, because they want to hunt there and the other, because they're a crazy hippie left-wing person. And the thing is, I wish they could get together and say, Hey, we don't agree on anything except this. Right. Right. And there's so many places where we strangely enough will overlap with people that we totally disagree with on all sorts of stuff. And we could work together to get that stuff fixed. Absolutely. Great point. And I can agree a hundred percent. But the problem, Scott, unfortunately, none of this is going to work because the Horda is going to die. Ah, no, it's not. <laughs> McCoy to the rescue. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. Can you help? Helped it. I cured it. Oh, well, I had the ship beam down a hundred pounds of that thermal concrete. You know, the kind we use to build emergency shelters out of. It's mostly silicone. I just trawled it into the wound and it'll act like a bandage until it heals. For an episode that was dark, no pun intended from the title, mm -hmm. where the stakes were high, just on set and offset, actually, that for it to culminate in such a beautiful moment in more ways than one, I just think is a testament to the greatness of this episode. Totally. And apparently, Bones is a doctor and a bricklayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he is. <laughs> um, and we're back on the bridge. We're getting ready to leave orbit. We hear from Vanderberg that... The eggs are hatching and those little guys are making tunnels all over the place. And they're already found more Pergeum deposits and gold and platinum and all this stuff. They are going to be really, really rich. And he, Vandenberg even says, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, it's all pretty great once you get used to their appearance. So, you know what? So something looks different doesn't mean it's bad. What Chief Vandenberg said about the Horta is exactly what the mother Horta said to me. She found humanoid appearance revolting, but she thought she could get used to it. Oh, she did, did she? Now tell me, did she happen to make any comment about those ears? Not specifically. But I did get the distinct impression she found them the most attractive human characteristic of all. I didn't have the heart to tell her that only I have... She really liked those ears? <laughs> but I love that Kirk says, Spock, I suspect that you're getting more and more human all the time. Captain, I see no reason to stand here and be insulted. Great Gene Kuhn end to a great Gene Kuhn episode directed by Joseph Pevney. Absolute classic. 
in every sense of the word. In fact, Dorothy Fontana, who was by now the story editor for Star Trek after her success with writing This Side of Paradise, said about The Devil in the Dark, that's the one that a lot of people remember very distinctly. The mother protecting her young. That's a great show. It's a great script. Another comment, this one from science fiction legend Arthur C. Clarke. So he said, that episode impressed me because it presented the idea, unusual in science fiction then and now, that something weird, even dangerous, need not be malevolent. It is a lesson that many of today's politicians have yet to learn. So I mentioned in the beginning of our, of our episode, Steve, that this is an episode with no women at all, other than the Horde. It's a blemish on the episode because it's otherwise just a perfect episode. But back in 1967, Gene Roddenberry had an issue with that, and he sent a memo to Gene Kuhn about it dated March 23rd, in which Roddenberry said, and I quote, per embassy's continual reminder to us, one which I find myself agreeing with, we should make more use of females as crew members in planet stories or find some way in to include females among groups of miners who are here on a planet years ahead at a time. Let us keep in mind that we're in a century where women are granted equal rights status and responsibility with men. We should keep reminding the assistant directors of this and discuss the same with the directors so they can oversee and control the same. This was in March of 1967, wow. and Gene Roddenberry was absolutely 100% correct. Wow. That, that is like a, the proto-diversity memo, you know? That is exactly the same discussions that are happening right now. Absolutely. And by the way, the easiest way to have done it, and, and I, I think the episode would have been better, is make Vanderberg a woman. Oh, there you go. Absolutely. I think that would have made that character even more interesting. Now, now on one hand, we are now looking at the series through the eyes of the 21st century. Yes. Okay. But even, even Gene Roddenberry himself in 1967 had the foresight and the wherewithal to make the same comment. So even though, you know, sometimes maybe you and I can unfairly judge an episode because we're, we're looking at it through the eyes of 2021 right. versus 1966 or 67. But, but this is absolutely uh, a, a, a time's up, me too type of comment to be made about, uh, guys, this is taking place in the 23rd century. Yeah. We have to make women more at the forefront along with the men. It is essential to do this. I mean, certainly certainly with the other later Star Trek shows did, especially the new ones. And, and the original series did a great job of this to, to a point. Right. And they did go pretty far with it, with diversity and gender balance, as far as they could in the late 60s. But this is one where it's it's still it's still pretty glaring. Well, and it's it's what I like about his memo is that the only way to do this is actively. You can't do it. You can't just hope that it'll happen. You have to remind people we actively are trying to do this thing. Um, this episode for me, even more than Arena, is like the archetypal idea episode in science fiction. And it was funny when I was uh, teaching film school. You, I get would get a syllabus for a new class and the, the university would say, okay, this is the fourth semester they should be learning about using music or doing montage or something. They give me an assignment. And one of the ones on a syllabus in a class I hadn't taught before was in two days, describe how all movie genres work. 
And so, and I went, okay. And then I had to think <laughs> about, well, how do all movie genres work? What is the difference between a horror movie and a thriller? And what are the themes of a Western or science fiction? Or what's the difference between science fiction and fantasy? So I, had a, I felt it was my responsibility to come up with definitions for all of these genres and to come up with examples that highlight those definitions. My definition of science fiction really is devil in the dark, which is that it uses technology and scientific ideas to help us explore the human condition and ideas in our world. That is an absolutely great point. I completely agree with that. I think that this episode has, has stood as the, as the archetype of Star Trek, like not just the original show, but of Star Trek, the, the uh, spirit of Star Trek. When I say that, that certain shows that I don't like as much as the earlier ones don't feel like Star Trek, I feel like it's because they are missing, missing the, the greatness of, of an episode like Devil in the Dark. And while I do agree that Devil in the Dark deserves to be on the pedestal that it is, I also think that the other episode that Gene Kuhn wrote for the second season, Metamorphosis, is a better, more fully realized mm. episode than Devil in the Dark, because not only does it have a very prominent role for a, a, a woman, Eleanor Donahue, as Commissioner Hedford in The Companion. But just like Devil in the Dark has a flip in which our heroes learn and show compassion. And also, I have to say, tolerance. Tolerance in that episode. And it is a beautiful, it, it, it's, you know, for much of it, it feels like Devil in the Dark. There's a threat. They have to kill it, get off the planet. But then it turns into a beautiful love story, a really, really beautiful, sensitively told, beautifully directed love story directed by Ralph Sinetsky. And that is why I actually hold Metamorphosis above Devil in the Dark, because it, it, it's, it's the one episode of, of, of the original series that to this day will bring me to tears. And I, I anticipate that during our conversation. I can, and I can't wait to get there. Um, so that is what we think of Devil in the Dark. It brought up a lot of thoughts, and we'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Uh, just do a search for Enterprise Incidents, and you can answer the questions that we brought up during this episode. And we'd just love to hear what you think about Devil in the Dark. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave your comments on YouTube. You can follow the show on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents on Twitter at Enter Incidents. You can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And since we've been talking about it, I want to recommend you check out my Great White Shark documentary, not Mind of the Demon, but Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, which is available for free on Amazon Prime. And I'm telling you, it's so inspired by Devil in the Dark. The whole point of that episode is to examine our fear and how our fear is not connected to the reality of what a shark is. And the goal of it is that hopefully by the end, People, even if you are afraid of sharks, you will see them in a different way, just like we see the Horda in a different way in Devil in the Dark. Scott, how people reach you? Well, before we get to how people can reach me, while we are at it, while you are checking out uh, Steve's other, other film, you should also check out Steve's conversation with John Rocco on The Cinephiles about 
Jaws. Oh, sure. Because that is definitely a Cinephiles episode that you should be listening to anyway, because the Cinephiles well, is without question the best conversation you're going to hear about film, just like Enterprise Incidents is the best conversation <laughs> you're going to hear about the original series. But do check out Steve's conversation with John Roca about Jaws on the Cinephiles and check out the Cinephiles anyway if you love movies. And of course you love movies because we all love movies. As for where you can find me, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And like Steve said, please leave a review for us on Enterprise Incidents at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews that you leave for us on Apple Podcasts would help us keep on the keep us on the map so more people find us. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents with all of your Star Trek friends, whether they are diehard original series fans or casual ones. Make sure you check out our Facebook page to see our our, our latest developments, our breaking news, and make sure you join us for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents as it is going to get quite heavy, I am sure, when we take on Errand of Mercy. So join us for the next Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.